Hello, this is Dan Linna. Welcome to Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. Today, I'm live at a conference in San Francisco with my guest, Ralph Baxter. Ralph served as chair and CEO of Oric from 1990 to 2013. He launched many innovations, including the creation of Oric's Global Operations Center in Wheeling, West Virginia, and changes in the firm's talent and pricing models. Today, Ralph writes and speaks about the delivery of legal services and regularly advises law firms, legal technology startups, and corporate legal departments on their strategies and execution. He serves on INTEF's board of directors, LegalZoom's legal advisory board, and too many other boards to name them all. And finally, and most important to our audience, soon Ralph will be joining us on the Legal Talk Network as a host of the Law Technology Now podcast. Ralph, welcome to the show. Dan, it's a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. Well, thanks, Ralph. Now, before we get started, we want to thank our sponsor, Headnote. Headnote helps lawyers get paid faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. To learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently, visit them at headnote.com. That's headnote.com. All right, Ralph, well, let's just jump right in here now. Um, <laughs> you spent 40 years at Oric and the last 25 of them as its chair and CEO. And for retirement, you apparently decided to go out and run for Congress in West Virginia. Right. Tell us a little about this. <clears throat> well, first of all, I deny retirement. <laughs> I, I, I had no intention of retiring, uh-huh. but I had, done, uh, I had been in big law. I'd been uh, chair of, of a great law firm at least long enough. Maybe too long, but at least long enough, and it was time for me to do something different. But I had I had no uh, intention to retire, and I didn't retire. And I spent several years after Oric working in other ways on legal service, and we'll, maybe we can get into some of that. But then I did run for Congress in 2018, and it, it was the experience of a lifetime. I, I have always cared about public policy. Um, and, but I had a day job. I had things that, that consumed my time and, and energies. But once I was done with Oric, uh, I was free to do whatever I wanted to do. And so I realized something that was uh, maybe not a dream of mine, but something I'd always cared about and uh, put my hat in the ring and, and ran for public office. And those were some of the best months of my life. I woke up uh, every morning feeling good about myself because I had one objective and only one objective in mind, and that was to help make the United States better by joining as a member of Congress and helping Congress do a better job of being rational and dealing with all of the issues that the United States confronts. Uh, It didn't work out uh, because democracy works in the way that it works. The people get to decide. And in West Virginia, uh, they decided that they wanted uh, a a very liberal agenda in a very conservative state. I was running a centrist uh, campaign. And now I'm back to doing what I know how to do, which is um, help change the way legal service is delivered. Well, uh, what do you think? Is there a chance you might go back and run yet again? I mean, it's pretty common that people lose their first election. Right. I did learn. It is common. And I did learn. People kept telling me during the course of the campaign, you know, really, this is your first campaign. You can't possibly win it. And I thought I could. And I do think I might have won the the general if I'd I'd made it through Mm -hmm. the primary. But I entered it believing it was a a single elimination tournament. Ah. Uh, Running for public office, we should appreciate every 
person who is willing to step up and put aside the rest of their lives to be to run for public office. It is it it, it absorbs everything in you to run for public office, and it absorbs uh, everything from your family as well, and it takes you away from your family. So. The arrangement my family and I had come to was that, that I was entering a single elimination tournament. And if I had won in the first round, we would have gone on through as far as we could go, and, and I might have done that for the rest of my life. But we lost in the first round, and so I'm out of the tournament, like the NCAA basketball tournament, and I'm back to what I, what I do know how to do. And, and I, I have never been more jazzed about what I am doing in law than I am with this, and I'm delighted to be doing it again and intend to do it far into the future. Well, you, you mentioned about doing some things with improving legal services delivery in between kind of ORIC and, and before you ran for Congress. Tell right. us a little bit more about that. So when I when I've, was done at ORIC, I pushed myself out of my comfort zone. One of, I have, I've had a wonderful career, and I'm, I was blessed to spend all of those years in big law, and I learned a lot from it. Uh, but there, there were, uh, there's so much of the ecosystem of, the, of legal service that I really hadn't experienced. So I deliberately pushed myself into situations in which I learned about legal technology, uh, which I, I knew how we consumed it at Oric. I knew how we used it, and we, and we, we pushed pretty hard. Uh, but I, there was so much more I needed uh, to know. I learned about law firms of different shapes and sizes than the MLaw 100, which I didn't really know much about the mechanics of them and the cultures of them and so on. I learned much more about the corporate legal department side of things, enabled mainly by Clock because Clock is like an emporium. You can get involved in Clock and 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 get a, a really a complete picture of how the modern legal department is thinking about uh, accessing uh, legal service. Uh, and then uh, I I got deeper into public service. One of the things that I concluded from my campaign is I never again want to be uh, away from activities that are in the public interest, although I think the things we're doing in legal are in the public interest. And so um, I joined uh, some public interest organizations uh, to work on those. And then, of course, I work with Stanford and Harvard in their centers on the legal profession and codex. So that's why so I jumped into all those things and, and enjoyed it. Uh, and Thomson Reuters, which we you, you mentioned, which yeah, I, yeah, which, yeah. right. So, um, so I, I started doing those things. I learned the ropes and now I'm back, and I, I know a lot more of what I'm doing uh, in all of those dimensions, and that's what I'm doing now. And so, Ralph, you became the chair and CEO of Oric in 1990. I remember when I graduated from law school hmm. from University of Michigan in the early 2000s, and, and it was a second career for me. And, and I remember getting out and starting practicing, and I realized I really don't know anything about the way law firms work or how they're mm -hmm. run. And I, I, so I looked for a book on, on law firm management. And mm -hmm. I remember I found this book, and it, it was titled the first myth of law firm management is that it exists. <laughs> and so I read that book and I started learning a little bit. But I mean, I think to the point I wanted to get to is in 1990, I have, my sense is that law firm management evolved tremendously during your career from 1992 right. to right. today. I mean, it can did. you just kind of tell us about, right. about that? Well, it did. I mean, some firms, of course, were very well managed and thoughtfully so. Some of the firms that became most successful uh, in the early days, like Cravath, had a real thesis of what they were trying to do and, and managed to it. And a number of firms around the country did, but most firms were not well-managed. They weren't very big, for one thing. Firms grew enormously during the time uh, that I was chair of Oric. In fact, at one point, I realized there wasn't anyone to whom we could turn 
for guidance about how to manage a law firm. Oric had hired McKinsey for a study before my time, and that had been very helpful in reorganizing Oric. In fact, a lot of the the structure that I was able to use in, in leading the firm when I was uh, uh, CEO of Oric had been created or on the recommendation of McKinsey. At any rate, so we created the Law Firm Leaders Forum back 22, 23 years ago in order to have a place where we could get together with the other people who were running law firms, none of us who really were trained to run businesses, and our businesses were getting bigger and bigger, to talk about the issues that were cutting edge for us at the time. And at the beginning, we talked about things like developing a strategic plan. I had a panel of our program in which one of the managing partners said on the panel, well, we don't really have a plan. And, 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 that, and it, that wasn't really out of keeping with the way uh, some firms were at the time. So over the years, we all learned together how to manage and lead law firms more, which we had to do because they became quite large enterprises. And as we know, not everybody did because there have been a lot of law firm failures uh, over the course of the last 25 years. Yeah. Well, so, so you mentioned that some of this work that you've been doing lately is is kind of surveying the landscape. And, and uh, most of the large law firms now, they have multiple people in the C-suite. So it's not just right. a, a lawyer as a managing partner. They're, they're other professionals. Right. I mean, what else would you, where, where do you kind of maybe see a change in the way, um, you know, looking at the AMLA 100 versus the 200 and, and just the management structures? And is there still more room for we need even more oh. professional managers in, in, in law firms of all well, shapes and sizes? The room for improvement is not so much the structure, but we, we need to change the fundamental business models of the law firms. So law firms have made quite a lot of progress in the personnel in, in the people who have given, been given some responsibility, although they still continue to, to limit more than I think law firms should the authority of chief operating officers, chief marketing officers, chief technology or information officers, and so on. They have such people. They are professionals. And just, just back to history for a moment, there was a time in this evolution of law firm leadership when the firms would bring in a professional to be in charge of finance or operations or something and then just not be able to cope with the idea that someone was in telling the partners, telling the firm what to do, and, and those uh, early hires often failed. Um, but today, the firms are, qu- are quite good at it. I just this last week was uh, surveying the people in chief marketing positions across the largest law firms in the United States, and it's a quite professional group and mm-hmm. knowledgeable and thoughtful and increasingly empowered uh, in, in the law firms. I think the big changes that the law firms need to make have to do, as I said, with the fundamental model. The, the model is outdated. I mean, so, so just digressing here for a second, what law firms need to do and what all of legal service needs to do is modernize. And it's a word I've come to because it's a relatively neutral word. In- innovation often has a, an implication of technology as a, as a principal solution, and it may be. But really what, what needs to happen is that the law firms and other large providers of legal service need to rethink what is the best way for us to organize all of our resources, to assemble and deploy resources to pursue the objective of optimally serving the clients. And 
that almost certainly means thinking about how you um, structure the service that you're going to deliver, the service model. It almost certainly means changing the resources that you assemble and deploy. For example, the traditional law firm is staffed entirely by licensed lawyers who are on track to be partner or are partner in a law firm. All production is done by such people in the most traditional model. That means in a large city, the least expensive means of production you have in the firm is $200,000 of cash compensation to begin, and then it goes up from there with, and so on. Instead, the model of the law firm likely should be a different mix of human beings, fewer on-track partners of the, of the entire lawyer set with careers for people that are not on track to partner and have different expectations and different, different costs associated with them, more human beings who are not licensed to practice law, and more technology, for example. And those are the kind of changes I think are on the horizon and really need to happen. And, and I think we will be able to see that real change is underway when we see changes in those dimensions in the financial model, the billable hour, the pricing model, and the investment model. Those are the places that I think we need to change. Well, as I'm listening to you say some of these things, Ralph, I think one of the things that strikes me is, is, is when I talk to uh, law firm leaders today, I think a it strikes me that many of them get it, many of the leaders of these law firms, but yet it's enormously difficult to actually bring about these changes inside of, of the law firms. So, I mean, if it's not like you're Jack Welch, right? And you can just decide who stays and who goes. That's it's, right. it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of a different challenge. That's I mean, right. What would you say about that, the change well, management process? Well, it, it is, it, you just said it, Exactly correctly. You are not running General Electric decades ago. You, you are running a partnership. These law firms were not designed to be billion-dollar businesses. So it's just a fact. And, and when, when we think about these problems, sometimes the answers are so obvious, and that's one of them. These, the law firm was designed to be a small organization of professionals that with informal processes for everything – Billing, everything, right? <laughs> yeah. And today, the, just staying with big law for a second, these are very large, complex businesses, and they need to have all sorts of process and, and procedures, but they're still partnerships. And even if they're professional corporations, they run like partnerships. And so the decision-making is not um, command and control. The partners will not, will not put up with that. It's, it's just not going to be the way you have to run it. That's why the person who is in charge of a law firm, the person who has the senior most position, needs to be a leader. You can't, you can't have partners do what you, what you have concluded they need to do mm -hmm. because you tell mm -hmm. them to. In fact, lawyers, this is not a bad thing. Lawyers need to be independent. For a lawyer really to do what the clients need him, her, them to do, the lawyer must be independent decide what the best course is, and stick to uh, that decision, especially when it's an ethical question or, or something like that. And so there's, there's always going to be that tension in a law practice or any professional service firm, but a partnership has a, a additional challenges to it. So anyway, that's a huge uh, a challenge, and so you have to learn to live with it, and I don't think it's going to change. I think you just learn to live with it, and you learn how to lead. Inspire your partners to see that it is a better way. And that, what we're talking about 
will make the kinds of changes that all of us are talking about. We'll make life better, outcomes better for everyone. We're not talking about something that's some um, superficial efficiency project that, that somehow yeah, just moves yeah. the cost a little bit or something like that. We're talking about fundamental changes that enable the lawyers and the law firms to serve the clients better, that enables the clients to access the legal service they need in a way that's more responsive and more cost-effective, that enables the law firms to make more money. Nothing we're talking about yeah, will, yeah. will, right? It enables the lawyers to enjoy their careers more, enables the law firms to have lower turnover of their associates, enables the law firms to create careers for people who are not licensed to practice law that are very rewarding careers that make more money than they can make somewhere else and, st and cost the law firms less than, than the law firms are now paying for the human beings that are doing the work now. All of it is better. Society is better off. The rule of law is more stable. It's win-win in every way, but the change is uh, going to take some managing and some leading. Yeah. But everything we're talking about, all of these changes are ones we should be able to lead everyone, all the stakeholders, to embrace. And, but but it's, it's going to take leadership. It takes leadership even with the clients. We're going to go to, to different ways of doing this, and, and, and the clients need some educating and some leading, just like the lawyers do, too. Ralph, I love everything you're saying there. I mean, uh, and, and it frustrates me sometimes because this conversation, it's, we think about it, it's, it's a fixed pie and, and, and we're losing something as lawyers. It's, it's about the boring commoditization message versus thinking bigger and, right. and, and all the things we can do in the industry and, and the way that we can um, improve access to legal services, improve rule of right. law, those sorts of things. Right. And we're talking, I think we're generally talking about leadership inside of organizations, but how do we change the messaging around this more generally and get people in the profession, the industry more excited about the opportunities out there for us? Well, so there's another dimension of impediment to that that we need to get on the table. Lawyers, especially in the AmLaw 100, are making a fortune. You know, and as everyone says in, in how, whatever way, humorous vein they, way, they, they choose to say it, it's hard to convince somebody they have a problem when they're making $1.6, $1 $1.82 million a year. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is the lawyers are great at what they do. They're, they're great. They're well-intentioned. So the, the best of the lawyers are successful. They wake up every morning highly confident that they're going to go off to the office and do a great job for their clients. So there's not a, a built-in incentive for them to change. We're talking about an issue that requires, as I said before, leadership, education. And part of it is simply there is a better way, and, and we need to appeal to our partners and, and, and all of the people in the ecosystem that there's a better way. But part of it is change is going to come one way or another. At the recent American Bar Association meeting in San Francisco, there was talk all over the city of San Francisco about how the change is coming. Because it is. The market is restless. The market knows it's not getting the legal service it needs. Some of the market is not getting legal service in part because they don't even know they need legal service. I mean, there's the, the consumer market is being underserved in ways that they don't fully know all of the time. But in the commercial market, in the corporates, they know that the service they're getting is not as responsive as it could be, it's not as fast as it could be, it's not as, as transparent as it could be, and it's certainly more expensive than it needs to be. They know that, and they're increasingly looking for alternatives. That's why the growth of headcount in corporate law departments it dwarfs 
the growth in headcount in private law practice. So change is coming. As, as, as I heard someone say at the ABA meeting, this is going to come either voluntarily on the part of the law firms or the bar associations, the Supreme Courts and the bar associations are going to change the rules or politicians will. Yeah, and right. That, and that, given the current cast of characters, is not our best alternative. We, we need a thoughtful resolution. So part of what can be done to lead everyone to this better day is education and leadership, and part of it is causing people, helping people understand that the market will not put up with these uh, in uh, the, the, these unsatisfactory responses to their needs forever. A day of change will come. We might as well embrace it and and adopt new approaches, new models that make things better for everyone, and we can do it on our our terms. Yeah. Well, I want to ask, go back to Oric just for it, but I want to ask one more question kind of on this topic because you just mentioned it. And actually, I've heard Jim Sandman mention this before at, at his Codex talks about one way in which the industry could change, and that would be the politicians decide they're going to step in and change the way the regulations work. And especially given your, your recent run in politics, I'm kind of, you know, why hasn't that happened already? Sometimes it surprises me that, that someone hasn't run on kind of a platform of saying, we're going we're gonna to fix this problem because the lawyers aren't moving fast enough to do it themselves. I, I don't think there's a lot of answers to that. <laughs> uh, but uh, just staying at, your, at the level that you're asking it, I don't think this issue has captured the imagination of the general public. Mm -hmm. This is more an issue for those who are corporate leaders, business people, and, and, and even there, they don't have as much clarity and they're not, they're not, they don't have the resolve that I think they should have. And when it comes to consumer law, uh, part of the problem is that it's, it's only those, it's a small band of people who really uh, focus on this issue and understand it. And Jim Sandman is one of the leading examples mm -hmm. uh, at the Legal Services Corporation. But so I think that's really the answer. There's plenty of other answers. The, the, the politicians, well, there's plenty of other answers, but, that, but I think that's the core reason. Yeah. Well, okay, so going back to, to Oric. One of the things you're credited for is that when you took over Oric, um, most people would say it was mostly a California-based, um, I don't know if I'd say a regional firm, but U.S. Mm -hmm. firm, and, and then it grew into uh, an international behemoth during our mm -hmm. time. Looking back, what, I mean, what would you, what are the most important things kind of in that tenure that, that really put Oric on that path, the innovations you, that, that, that you put into place and, and the changes made while you were at Oric? So... The, the law firm, part of it was, was fortuity. The law firm had experienced an off financial year when there had been a major change in the law that affected our then largest law uh, practice group. And so the firm experienced a reduction in its income to the partners. And that put people on notice that something bad could happen if you weren't careful or some, something like that. And that was actually what led to me being elected at, a, at an age that was highly uncommon at the time. I was 43 years old. Um, so that, that, there was a setting in, the, in which the, the platform had a little fire under it uh, by, by virtue of that one sort of happenstance. So the, a second sort of fortuitous development was that uh, major law firms from other parts of the country discovered San Francisco. 
And okay. so they were coming into our market. And what had, what had been a market that belonged to a handful of large law firms in San Francisco was now uh, uh, the target of competition from other outstanding firms coming from New York, Los Angeles, and so on. So those things together gave us a, a foundation for understanding that we couldn't just sit there playing the game the way we always had. And that was really helpful. And then I said to the partners, well, the only reason I can, I can uh, imagine that you elected me at age 43, mm-hmm. who was – I was a labor and employment lawyer. I wasn't a corporate lawyer. I didn't have a background in management, was that you wanted change. So let's have some. And so we did. And so we, we took it as a mandate to change some things that led us on that path. And from the entire time that I was leading ORIC, and I think it's still fully true today, ORIC regarded the world, the, the marketplace, the clients' needs as something in transition in, in a, in a, that was dynamic and that we needed to be dynamic with it. So we thought through what where do we need to be, what do we need to be able to do to have the position in the future that we had back then, where, which was a very strong position in a regional market. And so we imagined a geography. We imagined a set of practices. We imagined a set of clients. And over the course of time, we changed much more than just our geographic footprint. We changed significantly the practice areas in which we specialize. We changed significantly our depth of penetration of industry sectors. We lifted the value of the engagements we did. We, when we were just a regional firm, we had a much broader array of matters we would do from relatively low matters uh, at stake to much higher matters at stake. And we oriented ourselves progressively to higher and higher um, value engagements so that we were competing regularly now with firms that were regarded as the leading firms in every market in the United States, not just in, in our San Francisco market. So uh, we, had a, we had a strategy and we pursued it. And I know one, one piece of that I mentioned in the intro was the uh, Global Operations Center in Wheeling, West Virginia. And I think you were talking earlier about lawyers not having processes and kind of like doing things with, you know, everyone right. has their own way of doing right. things. Of course, to outsource that way, things need to change, Ron. Right. Can you just tell us a little bit about how that Right. That, the, I think, without a doubt, that was the most significant thing we did during the time that I was leading ORIC, and it had lots of implications. It started as a simple idea that the rents in San Francisco were then getting as high as they are today, back way back then, which was um, the, the late 90s. And so we, we thought, well, we certainly we could save some money by putting some of these functions, and it was the dawning of, of the information age, so you could do things remotely in a way that you couldn't have done 10 years early, earlier than that. So we decided that we would consider establishing a center somewhere. Initially, we could only think of a handful of jobs we could move, but as we, as we went through time, the number got larger and larger, and, and we ended up organizing this center in Wheeling, West Virginia, which we chose because they were the place in the country that both got it better than anybody else at the time, and it was a place that we knew had a workforce that we could rely on, which turned out to be uh, true. And so we moved some, some number of functions. We had about 70 jobs. We moved to Wheeling, West Virginia. But as we went through the process, we learned that not only could we save money, we could do things better. We would have real synergies. Bringing all these things into one place would give us real synergies. And so we did that, and, and, and it worked phenomenally. We saved a lot of money. We did all sorts of other things. But along the way, we also learned about communication. 
because this was going to be a big change. This mm-hmm. was going to be unsettling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And including there were going to be 70, 50, 60, some number of people would, would have their positions changed at the minimum, and maybe they would lose their positions. And so we launched a communications program to make sure that everybody understood what we were doing, why we were doing it, how we were going to make sure that the impact on any of the incumbent people was as limited as possible. And from that, we made the morale of the firm stronger, but we also learned better how to communicate across a firm, which by then had become a firm that was a multi-jurisdictional firm, a multi-practice firm. It was much more complicated than it had been back in 1990 when I first was elected. And the lessons we learned about communicating served us well for the rest of time that I was at Oric and are serving uh, Mitch Zuckley, my successor, and the leadership team uh, well today. One of the interesting things about looking at at large international law firms is uh, you see that no one really has a lar- has captured a large percentage of the marketplace. And so I'm just I'm kind of wondering if if you're leading a law firm now, one of the top ten law firms in the world, let's say, is anyone out there kind of looking at the market and saying we have about one percent of the market? Man, we could triple to three or maybe even five or ten percent. I mean, is that is that potentially a game plan you think for for a law firm? Absolutely. Every major law firm should be thinking about market share, which starts with, so what is our market? What market are we pursuing? So, right, and so, which isn't the entire market, right? You, every law firm should be thinking about the value of engagements from low to high that it, it's pursuing, the industry sectors, the practice areas, the, the places in the world, and, and, and the firm can come to a definition of market it's pursuing, and then it should quantify what share do we have now and what share would be an acceptable share. That would be an outstanding way for law firms to think about it, and I'm sure some of them uh, are. They also should be thinking about their principal clients and what share of the client's spending should they be capturing. That's a, a client market effectively. Yes, they should be thinking that way. And you were talking about the corporate legal department, the, the, the number of lawyers being hired by corporate legal departments. When I practiced, I, I worked for, did a lot of automotive supply chain work, right? Hmm. And so thinking about outsourcing right. and, and offshoring and nearshoring, all these concepts. And I'm, I'm just kind of curious what you think about, uh, you know, this is a phenomenon we don't see in other areas, right? If you're General Electric, if you're General Motors, you tend to think about, well, what's our core competency? What are we really good at? And building a law firm inside of your company is usually maybe wouldn't be high in the that's list right. of things you want to do. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think if I was back in the law firm, that's the other thing I'd look at and say, well, there's an opportunity here for us, right? The, 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 the companies might be taking more of this work in-house now. But we can win some of that back. Now, there's other players. There's the big four and alternative legal service providers. And I mean, right. but what do you think will really happen over time with, with the corporate legal departments and, and these new players? Well, it's the great, great thing about capitalism. The, the more freedom to compete we create, and then we, I think we do need reform in the rules to let more people compete let more human beings be part of legal service and let some investors invest and in, in all those things uh, that, that are being considered now. But we will see it play out in a way that ultimately will be, that's the way capitalism works, it will be better for the market because the market will make choices. So you make a very good point about corporate law departments. Those are cost centers. They're not the core competency. Those, those companies are not in the business of legal service. They're in the business of whatever they're doing. But they've, they've made a choice to bring these very significant portions of their legal service needs in-house. Some of that they will do 
uh, forever. I'm, sure, it makes sure, sense. Sure, they've always sure. made sense to right. have some, right. and not as much as they have. So, so 25%, maybe more of the market today is in-house. If you were a car manufacturer mm-hmm. and 25% of your customers were making their own cars, you would know, <laughs> right? You would know you had a problem. It's a good example. So, right. And so, so the law firms should be thinking, and as you say, there'll be other competitors competing for that share as well, but should be thinking about how do we best uh, persuade our clients that they should build on our experience together, our mutual trust, our mutual dedication to get to a result in which we do at the law firm more of the work and take that off of their cost sheet, the, the, the expense side of their, of their, of their income statement, and, and do it in a way that makes sense for them. They're doing it in-house because turning to the law firms is not working for them. So it's an easy way for the law firms to think about why they need to change. Let's rearrange our model and other things so that we can deliver that legal service in a way they will find superior to doing it themselves. That sounds like a great plan. I want to come back to this point on competition, but first, before we continue our interview with Ralph Baxter, former chair and CEO of Oric, we're going to take a break to hear a message from our sponsor. Hey, law firms, getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? Enter Headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls due to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. And we're back. Thank you for joining us. We're with Ralph Baxter, former chair and CEO of Oric. Ralph, before we went to the break, we were talking a little bit about competition in the marketplace. And there's a lot. We're, we're in California right now, a lot going on in California with the talks about the changes to the regulations potentially. Uh, I, I want to ask you a two part question. First of all, what do you think ought to happen, which is best? for the legal marketplace writ large. And then I want you to think about your perspective of running a large law firm. Like, how do you think it would impact large law firms? How should large law firms be preparing for what right. could be coming? Yeah, that's the sec- those are both really interesting questions. Uh, so I think that we should find a way to make two fundamental changes. And then, and then there will be some corresponding changes we may need to make to adapt to those changes. But one is we should liberalize the range of human beings who are permitted to participate in the delivery of legal service. We should eliminate the risk that someone doing parts of the work that are embedded in legal service is somehow violating the rules against the unauthorized practice of law. And and I think there's a lot of other changes we need to make about the way we think about this, that fundamental question. But, but we need to permit human beings who have the intellect and the interest and the, and the character to be participants in delivering legal service to join uh, the uh, licensed lawyers who are part of legal service. And I think that for a lot of reasons, some of which are it will drive the cost down and, and enable uh, legal service to be delivered in a more cost-effective way, but perhaps more important, 
a more diverse set of people with different backgrounds, different perspectives, will be able to come up with better ideas about how to serve the clients based on the, the legal knowledge and, 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 and thinking that the lawyers bring to bear, but, all, but based on the concepts they've developed in their lives in other ways in engineering and finance and accounting and project and process management, all the other kinds of disciplines we might bring together. So, but one change is uh, permitting more people than just licensed lawyers to participate. But the other is permitting ownership or investment in law firms and legal service uh, companies uh, by people who are not themselves licensed lawyers. That, that made sense perhaps at a different time. I don't think it makes sense today. And certainly when it comes to legal service for the consumer, for the individual who has small stakes matters like a landlord tenant dispute or a family law or an immigration law issue that don't have a lot of stakes to them, it's almost impossible for law firms to make an economically viable uh, financial model to serve those clients. But if you had some investment and you could create an enterprise that has had a broader reach, you could make uh, take the cost down with scale to serve that market. That's what motivated uh, the UK mm-hmm. to make the changes they made, and I think it should motivate the US uh, lawmakers, rule regu- regulators, to make the change as well. Okay. And then what about the second part of my question then? Put your hat back on. You're back in the big law firm. And, and what do you think larger law firms ought to be doing to prepare for these potential changes in well, the marketplace? This should hasten the day that they change the model in the ways that, that we were talking about before. Certainly with a more liberal notion of who can participate in the law firm. It will be easier for firms to assemble uh, human resources that have a higher portion of human beings who are not licensed lawyers, but who are making a real contribution to the service itself, not just the, the support of the service, but the service itself. So that's one change that I think law firms should embrace as soon as, as the rules change, if they, if they do change. The other change they should embrace across the board is sharing the economic rewards of the law firm with the, the, the people who work in the firm who are not lawyers themselves. You know, law firms misapprehend the model to, as it is, thinking that all of the income of the law firm is paid to the partners. That's not so. The, the income, whether you denominate it as salary or not, that you pay the, the lawyers is income you're deriving from the, the clients. And so I think the law firms now readily can broaden that category to share the income with uh, people who are other professionals in the firm than the lawyers. Now, the, the harder question is, do you um, permit an outside entity to invest in your firm? The experience so far in the UK is that they don't. Uh, but but we will see whether the large firms uh, take some uh, private equity investment in them in, to enable them to make further investments themselves in expansion or something else and to uh, distribute some uh, value of the enterprise to the partners. Well, not surprisingly, there have been some objections by practicing lawyers to some of these uh, reform proposals. Some people want to see more data or stronger data from the UK. Some people are pointing to some of the the changes or, or, in, or innovations we're seeing in the marketplace, like new law firms like Atrium and, and, and some of the changes happening. Some people worry about 
the quality of legal services in the marketplace. I mean, what would you say, what, what is your response, I guess, just to some of these uh, uh, arguments that are being presented on, on that we need to take it a little bit more cautiously? I don't think we need to take it more cautiously. Uh, the, at, the, at the minimum, for legal service uh, enterprises, law firms that are serving consumers, it's not going to work if we don't permit them to raise some capital to build the infrastructure and the business model they need to, to serve uh, clients with these relatively low value uh, in terms of economic stakes uh, matters. Uh, so I, and, and I don't think the idea that somehow you can't be ethical if you have an investor, well, goodness, well, then we can't have any pharmaceuticals because you need ethics in, in, in pharmaceuticals and other kinds of enterprises. I, I, do, I just don't buy it that the only ethical people are lawyers. I just I don't, or, or professionals. So I think we can do this. We'll do it with regulation. We'll do it with oversight. And then if there is a problem, we will address it just the way that we do if there's a problem with the, uh, with the ethical behavior of, of lawyers. Um, I also don't think we have to wait for somebody else to experiment and, and prove that something works. The, we're not talking about changes here that are that risky. In, in, when it comes to the personnel involved in delivering legal service, we already use human beings who are not licensed to practice law to do work that is embedded in legal service. It's always been part of the, of the history of law. When I, I was motivated to be a lawyer because I watched the television program Perry Mason. And Perry Mason had a three-person team, and only one of them was a lawyer. And they did just <laughs> fine. They were ethical, and they got great results. Mm -hmm. And they had a successful television program, mm -hmm. right? But, but I think we know from history that we can do this with people doing the, sharing the work. As to investors... I think that the, the ethics, the morality, the determination of lawyers is sufficient that we will be able to keep our compass aimed in the right direction in terms of morals and ethics, even if we do have some investors. What about um, law students and junior lawyers right now? I mean, watching some of these changes, and there's a lot of concern. Of the, a lot of junior lawyers have a lot of debt. If, you, if you're deciding to go to law school, uh, you're deciding to take on a lot of debt. Um, you know, I, I see a lot of opportunities in the marketplace, but easy for me to say, I already have the degree. I don't have to make right. that big investment again. Um, some people aren't so bullish about what the, where the profession may be headed. Uh, I, this is predicting the future maybe a little bit, but I, I think, well, we have to do that first of all, right. To prepare for mm -hmm. it. And, and some part of it is I think we can create the future, but some of that's in our hands. But mm -hmm. I mean, what do you think, I mean, what should students in law school be doing? What should junior lawyers be doing to prepare for the future? Well, these, there's a lot of different questions, a lot of different issues that they should be thinking about. Of course, they all are thinking about all these issues. Many of them, a record, record numbers of them, thought about these issues and decided not to go to law school. Mm -hmm. One of our problems with the future is the decline in the number of, of people going to law school and, and, and specifically the decline of some of the people who might have been the best lawyers choosing other careers. So it's already happening. They're already thinking about that. And they've amassed uh, obscene amounts of debt. And, and there's a whole other challenge. Yeah, right. Why is that so? Why mm -hmm. is it so costly? But they have a, a, a main, amassed this debt, so they're going to deal with that no matter what happens. So those are real problems. 
I think the future that lies ahead is as likely as not to be better than the status quo. If you are if, – if, if you're graduating from law school, if you, if you – let's say you did graduate from law school three or four years ago, it was almost certain if you went to a big law firm, you were going to be doing a lot of work that has nothing to do with what motivated you to be a lawyer. Right. All the, right. All those yeah. – all the intensive document review and all, all of those things. So in the future that we've been talking about during this conversation – is a future in which that work gets done by other human beings. That work gets in, in, in a setting in which that, from their point of view, fits to what their ambitions are and their career plans are, or is done by the, by the technology. So I think there's a fairly good chance for people who are now in law school or contemplating law school that the the, the setting into which they move will be more favorable for them. But then there's this: the newest generation is much more ready to go into the law firms and embrace the kinds of changes we are talking about, to embrace the technology, to embrace collaborating with other human beings who they respect, who they don't call non-something, who they, they talk to as though they are peers in, in, the, in the workplace with them, because they, they haven't grown up in this tradition of law, and they have grown up with technology. They have grown up with a new technology every week that does something different, and they adapt and learn how to use it. I think, actually, the, the, the current law students and future law students will have an advantage in the world ahead because of those factors that will offset some of the things that might concern them. Well, you know, one of the things that I think is a, is a challenge is when we talk about the legal market, we tend to generalize a lot and talk about the whole marketplace. Or even if we start talking about law firms, we, we, we talk about right. um, the AMLA 200. There's certainly a lot of differences from the top to bottom there. Right. Um, so I wanted to ask like, about a particular part of the, the law school marketplace. And, and I taught at the University of Michigan. I'm teach, as an adjunct, I taught at Michigan State. Uh, a lot of the, the success we had at Michigan State was we, we definitely had students going into big law firms, quite a few of them. Uh, some went into practicing attorney roles, quite a few went into project manager, legal knowledge engineer type of roles. Uh, at, at Northwestern now, of course, what we're, most of what we're trying to do, most of our students want to be traditional lawyers in big firms. And we see more and more of them using uh, building innovation skills, uh, technology skills as being able to set them apart. But I think there's a lot of, there's a lack of clarity in the marketplace about whether the big law firms really are starting to value those skills in their new potential hires, or are they still just really looking down the, the U.S. news pecking list and, and hiring based on that? I mean, what do you think? Is, is this just aspirational that, that hopefully the firms will start hiring for those skills, or is it actually starting to happen? It isn't just aspirational. But I don't think the, law, the, the uh, law schools should set their curriculum based on what they think the, the law firms are going to use as their predictors or criteria for selection. The law schools should be training the lawyers in these other skills because it will make them better lawyers. Mm -hmm. And that's the job mm -hmm. of the law schools, to prepare people to be the best lawyers they can be. And that's enough. That's enough of an answer. I'd, you, you said something a moment in your question that was exactly right. The law firms are different one from another. In a way, all law firms are alike. Mm -hmm. In other ways, mm -hmm. in really mm -hmm. important ways, they're very different one from another, even if they're the same size and grew up in the same original city. And, and so uh, some firms do value these skills more than others, um, but law firms have a long, long way to go to um, understand how to hire, what to think about, what are the, the predictors of being a successful lawyer. And I think a lot of change will come because a lot of data is coming out about this. 
some of which has been uh, assembled by our good friends Evan Parker and and mm-hmm. and Bill Henderson. Yeah. But but um, so so I think there there will be changes in that. But these skills that at Northwestern and 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 some other progressive law schools are being taught are ones that lawyers for the future need to have. Just as it was always so that to be a great lawyer, you needed more to know more than the rule in Shelley's case. Uh, you, you, there are other things you need to know, and, and we didn't do a very good job of teaching those. But now there are these additional issues like process design and collaboration and technology and adapting to technology that uh, successful lawyers will need to know. What about leadership? I mean, you've talked a lot about leadership throughout this podcast and, and your political campaigns, running a, a law firm. We graduate a lot of lawyers who haven't had any exposure to any of the things you talked about right. and not leadership either. Right. And, and so depending on the setting, you're going to need uh, to be a leader. You're going to need to be good at selling. Mm-hmm. You know, every, and so yeah. there are other, other skills. So Yes, that would be good too. Uh-huh. I mean, selling. Let's take selling for a second. For a second, Dan Pink has written a book, yeah. right? About we're all in yes, selling. Right. Yeah. Teachers and preachers, and 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 jury trial lawyers are selling in the sense that they're trying to persuade right. the jury or whoever it is that what their client did was okay or whatever whatever it is. And we have to teach and and convince our partners to change or our clients to change and so on. So yes, all those skills uh, are, would be good to have, but some of these skills are, are downright necessary for a 21st century lawyer. Yeah. I like that example. I just think it's funny about sales because I, I know lawyers all the time, they'll look at someone who has a big book of business. Oh, well, you know, Sally's good at marketing. And mm-hmm. it's like, some, it's like, What's wrong with that? That is actually That's part right. of the of the, the, the description to right. be good at what we do, actually that, knowing how to That's right. Yeah. That's right. So if you are if you are a great teacher mm-hmm. in the classroom, mm-hmm. part of what you're doing is selling your students on the importance of learning, the importance of knowledge, the importance of, of the subject matter. That's part of what you are doing. That's how you get them to pay attention. That's how you get them to do their homework. And, and, and if you are a religious leader, you are selling them on, on whatever the precepts of the religion are. So it is part of it. If you reverse engineered how the most successful lawyers got to be successful, part of it was selling in the sense that they inspired the confidence of the clients that they were the person who should be chosen to, to represent their interests – and, and part of it was because they were really good at representing their interests. Of course, the things that you that you lie awake at night as a child wanting to do as a lawyer. Mm-hmm. But but if you can't sell in the in the way that we're talking about it, you don't have a client to represent. Right. Right. Well, you actually picked up on another thing I wanted to ask you about. Actually, when you started talking about education, I noticed that you ended up you got a master's degree in education. Right. I had a so, job before law too, just like you. <laughs> right. My second career. Well and, and so and and how did you end up pivoting and going into law then? Well I always I always wanted to be a lawyer. I mean I, I'm not okay. kidding about Perry Mason and, and I just <laughs> I just loved the prospect of cross examining the witness and getting the witness to yeah. tell the truth, which yeah. I did. Yeah. During my time as a lawyer. But that's the thing I miss most, by the way. Like I think from practicing is yeah. yeah. Me <laughs> too. Being able to cross examine. Right. Yeah. 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 No, I agree. And and so but that was that was the allure for me. But uh, in in so I finished college, I wanted to do some public service. 
And so I, I joined the Urban Teacher Corps in Washington, D.C. in the late 60s. There, when I got to Washington, there were tanks in the streets after the riots, after mm -hmm. the assassinations mm -hmm. of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. And, and so I taught public school for three years, and those were hugely valuable years for me. I felt good about public service, but more important, I learned so much. Uh, you know, teaching children. I had the sixth grade in inner city Washington uh, who were economically challenged for oh, the most part wow. and certainly challenged by all the other things uh, that, that it, what it was like to be black in America and in, mm -hmm. in, in, in the United, in Washington, D.C. in the 60s. And I learned so much from them and, and so much from the other teachers with whom I worked. Uh, it, was, it was a great experience for me. But then I then I I, fin I did that. <clears throat> I agreed to do it for three years. I did it for three years. It was a wonderful experience. And then I went to, to law school. What a great experience. Well, I, I want to really shift gears here now for a second because we've alluded to technology. We've talked about it a little bit. And there's a lot of discussion about artificial intelligence. I think there's tremendous misunderstanding of what what we're really talking about, these technology tools. And uh, I think we're barely getting up to speed to where the technology was 20 years ago in the legal industry. And, and we're not even really thinking about where the technology is going to go in the next 20 years. Um, not everyone maybe would agree with that characterization of it, but tell me, what do you, what do you see kind of like what's happening on the ground and, and, and how are the most forward thinking firms preparing for where technology is going to go over the next 20 years? So, I think fundamentally, the most important, fundamentally, what the law firms are going to do most and soonest is get in control of their data. It's going to be information technology. And this is what Richard Susskind and, and, uh, and Daniel Susskind talk about in, their, in their, mm -hmm. their new great new book about the future of the professions. So that's going to be first and foremost. So assembling, there's so much powerful data over which the law firms already preside that will enable them to serve the clients better, to price better, to manage their, their uh, staffing better. Everything they do, they can do better by getting in control of their data, the taxonomy of the data, mm -hmm. the way it's organized, the way it's integrated, the way it's presented, the way it's, it, the partners and the other lawyers uh, interface with the information, all of that. And I think that's the, that's where the prominent action is going to be in the near term. But artificial intelligence, meaning by that, for me, it's mainly machine learning. Sure. And, right. and so deriving the power of the technology, using that to derive from what you have done to what you can do the next time and, and start with those documents already prepared and start with get a head start on everything that you're doing in the legal service will be very important. But the first step is getting control and making the most of your information and including within that the analytics. Just, you know, I was on the board of Lex Machina, one of those boards. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, and and, and um, Lex Machina, they, even, even when it was IP only, which now LexisNexis is much more, but it enables you to see what the likelihood of a given motion being granted is to see how the judge in front of whom you are appearing behaves in the setting that you're going to present, to see how the law firm you're against, the client you're against, all of these, these issues that were, that were obscure, that just were unknown to you, you now can know. It, it's, it, it's huge. I'm now on the board of INTAP. 
which serves about 95% of the MLAW 200 with its information. I've learned so much from the people at INTAP about what is possible for the law firms if they will take the time and organize themselves and their thinking and their prioritization to assemble and deploy their data, learn from it, analyze it, and serve the clients better and be more successful as law firms. What do you think the clients are expecting law firms to be doing to serve them better today? I mean, a lot of the change is being driven by Corporate Legal Operations Consortium, um, ACC, the groups that are, that are starting to push law firms more and more. What do you think they really expect to see the law firms doing today? Well, first and foremost, they expect the law firms to do a better job of managing their own affairs. So they expect the law firms to be thinking about their business models. They expect the law firms to be drawing on their information. They expect when the law firms are pricing a matter to be able to look back at what they've done in the past. They know how to look at their own data. They know, our clients know, how to look at their data for the purposes of doing all the things that they do as they, as they pursue their strategies. They expect the law firms to do that. One of the things I've learned in the post-ORIC, my post-ORIC years is that what the clients expect first and foremost is for the law firms to take care of their own businesses. That's what I think. I th- by the way, I think there's a lot of room for the corporate legal departments to push more on the law firms. They have the buying power. They can do more with it, and I think they should. Well, can you give some examples of that? I mean, I, one of the things that I see that blew my mind is, is uh, Microsoft has been doing this forum now where they invite some law firms in. And I understand that some firms declined to show up. Now, maybe it's because they thought they didn't have anything to show. But I also think it might be that they thought, we don't have to do this dog and pony show and we'll still be okay. But, uh, I mean, can you give specific examples maybe of um, what you think corporate legal departments could be doing or ought to be doing maybe to push the law firms well, a little more? So, and I can't comment on Microsoft or any particular uh, client, but what, what I think the corporate legal departments should be much more focused on the business models of the law firms and should be telling the law firms, in, a, in addition to all the other things that we monitor, they, they do monitor what it's costing them, they do monitor um, the satisfaction of the, in, the internal satisfaction within the corporate legal department with uh, the work of the law firm and, and other things. But they should tell the law firms, we're going to monitor your business model. I, I think they should take a lead in expressing that they are concerned about how the law firm incurs cost, because that's one of the drivers of the price being so high. And so tell the law firms that it, they expect them to put more attention to the models than they have been historically putting. When the corporate legal departments told the law firms 15, 20 years ago, whenever it was, that we're going to focus more on what you do to make yourselves more diverse, it produced mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. direct and significant action by the law firms. It didn't solve the problem, but more, more effort was put, more thinking was put to creating a more diverse and inclusive workforce. I think if the corporate legal departments said something analogous about the business models of law firms, they would accelerate progress. I think a, a thread that would run through many of the issues we talked about is that we don't have good measures for quality in the legal industry. And... 
We see that show up in a lot of places. We see it show up in this regulation discussion because people are worried about what the quality of service is going to be now. And then they, you know, they have these anecdotes and, and say about different ways in which something may have been messed up. It relates to so many of these things that we're talking about. Are, have you seen changes in the marketplace that would suggest to you, um, you know, whether it's consultants or academics or others that maybe we're making progress on, on try to figure out, because this relates to the machine learning question as well, because right. there's, there's so many areas where we know that we do something as a lawyer, but we really don't know what the outcome was. Did it contribute to a victory to, or advancing the ball in any right. way? And if, if you don't, can't tie that kind of effort to, you know, what, right. what happened in the world, then it's difficult to apply some of these technologies. So I believe it is increasingly common for corporate legal departments to be doing something in terms of monitoring results that amounts to what you're talking about. Whether it's actually quality metrics or not, they're measuring satisfaction, they're measuring mm -hmm. success. And so there, there is progress and there's talk at clock and elsewhere about that. And then, of course, there's Ron Dolan, mm -hmm. who has spent now several years at Stanford, now at Harvard, studying quality metrics, pursuing a belief that he has and a well-founded belief from other experiences. This is a good example of a diverse workforce from other experiences in technology, including at Google, uh, that you can measure quality, even though a lot of the judgment about quality is subjective, you still can establish parameters that permit you in a way that is relatively objective to measure quality. And that's, I think that's a significant under, undertaking because Ron's a significant person, a serious person, mm -hmm. and he's backed by Harvard and, and dealing with uh, law firms and major corporate law departments. And I think something will come of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we should have 10 other academics studying it as well. Right, yeah. right. Uh, you mentioned, uh, we're, we're coming close to the, to the end of our time, but I just wanted to come back to one thing that you mentioned before. Um, you know, and I loved your vision that we were talking about that uh, some of these regulations we're talking about. You know, I, I don't think we set big enough goals for ourselves as an industry. When we've got 80% of the impoverished with, uh, with lack access to legal services, half the middle class, uh, what is our moonshot, right? And, and why aren't we talking about improving justice systems and improving rule of law, not only in our own country, but uh, around the globe. Um, but, you know, how do you really see changes in regulation, improving legal practice? I mean, I believe in what you say, too, across the marketplace. That's why in some of the programs we've been working with, working with big law firms and things like that, and, and you see law firms working with legal clinics, things mm -hmm. to improve delivery across the marketplace. But how do we kind of tie these things together to make sure that it's contributing to improving access to legal services and improving rule of law, the innovation and technology efforts as well? Well, I think that comes back to leadership. So um, I, had, uh, I had a conversation recently with um, some of the new leadership in the ABA, and they see themselves as leaders, and they are. Judy Perry Martinez mm -hmm. is a leader, mm -hmm. and and they the ABA can be a force to lead the partners uh, and the, the lawyers to do more. You know, back this this brings us back to a subject you asked about before. Why isn't there more political action on this front? And and I, I think my answer effectively was there's not enough broad uh, interest in the among the the electorate in this subject. The people who know that this is a problem are the lawyers. They know. And those who are involved in legal, in, 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 in delivering legal service to the consumers, like the Legal Services Corporation, they know what the problem is. Lawyers have a responsibility 
in exchange for the privilege of being lawyers, especially now, to look after the interests of all who depend on law, and especially, as you said, we believe in the rule of law. The rule of law is key to commerce, to a just society. And the lawyers know that we have this disgraceful situation on our hands of so many Americans not having real access to justice. So I think the responsibility falls to the lawyers and the leaders of lawyers to drive toward an outcome that does align all of the rest of these changes with, uh, with addressing these critical public interest questions. Well, it, it's interesting to talk about the responsibility, and, and do we take that seriously enough? Are there enough people who really think that? I mean, I've seen Jim Sandman speak many times. I was just in London at DLA Piper put on a, a summit, Access to Justice and Technology, and Jim asked, where is the outrage? Where is the outrage? And, and, and I think you know, some, of us, some of us are outraged by the current political situation in the U.S. Shouldn't we be directing that same outrage to this situation? I mean, if we want people to respect rule of law, when there's so many people in our country are so disconnected from the legal system, from lawyers, from, from redress, um, why aren't we addressing or turning some of our outrage there and, and solving this problem? You make a very important point. There should be outrage. I'm reminded by your question of a, a time that I invited J Jim Sandman to talk at the Law Firm Leaders Forum. And I also invited my wife and daughter uh, to, to attend that luncheon where, where Jim was speaking. And I literally saw my daughters, and she was then a young adult and working in New York City, I saw her jaw drop. She couldn't believe what she was hearing from Jim about the number of people hmm. who yeah. were not able to access legal service at all. It just, she had no way of knowing it. I think of, of the great essay that David Wilkins and Bill Lee and, and uh, Ben Heineman uh, wrote several years ago about the responsibility of lawyers to serve the best interests of society. In the book that, that Ben Heineman wrote about the responsibility of, of in-house counsel mm -hmm. to be the conscience of the corporations, we all have, as lawyers, the responsibility to see to it that the rule of law is a reality for everyone in the United States and to do the things that it takes, including making sacrifice in our economics, including expecting, in, by, by doing work pro bono and so on, including expecting all of our lawyers to be good citizens and to work for the rule of law. And we should be much more upset, much more outraged uh, by the current state of affairs. I think you are right. But, but so, so what's the answer? You can't make that happen. You can't cause it to happen by edict. You, mm -hmm, you, that, mm -hmm. We're back to talking about leadership yeah, yeah. and inspiring our people to be the best they can be. And I do think it's going to, it ends up falling to the, the legal community, whatever that turns out to be. If we broaden the community to include licensed lawyers and others, we'll still expect them to do this, to, to rise to this responsibility in exchange for the right they have to deliver legal service. Well, Ralph, I could talk with you for hours. I'm just going to limit myself, though, to one <laughs> last question. And, uh, you know, you talked about inspiring people. We talked about this. It, it is a problem that um, lots of bright students who want to make a difference in the world 
are no longer going to law school. And of course, I'm in a little bit of a conflicted position because I'm now in a law school. So I, I try to make sure I'm careful about how I counsel students about thinking. It's an important decision if you to go to law school. Um, but yet, I, I want students to understand the kind of impact they can make in the world by going to law school and, and choosing this profession. I mean, I, what would you say, I guess, to someone who's thinking about going to law school and, and, and why they ought to maybe consider it and, and the future that you see for them in the law? Well, I think anyone considering going to law school should be uh, realistic mm -hmm. and make sure mm -hmm. they are informed. I have four children, all of whom learned about law practice uh, sitting around the, the dinner table in the Baxter household, and only one of them chose to go to law school. <laughs> um, and, and, but, but they should be informed, make sure it's right for them. But it is a very worthy career. It, 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 it is um, a noble career. You are serving the public interest day in and day out. Even when you are serving the interests of individual clients who have commercial interests that you're pursuing, or uh, and no matter what it is, you are strengthening, you are acting out, you are enabling the rule of law in the United States or wherever you are as a lawyer. And it's rewarding. You are helping people achieve their objectives, solve their problems. You make their lives or their businesses better. So it's a wonderful career. And at its best, especially if we play our cards right and, and make some of the changes that are right in front of us, which is what modernization is, is to, to, to take advantage of processes and ideas and tools that are available to us in the 21st century. If we do those things, it will be an ever more rewarding career. We once again will have lawyers and others in legal service looking forward to trying that case to the jury, cross-examining the witness, closing the deal of a lifetime because their special skills enabled it to happen. It's, it's a wonderful career for those who are drawn to the, to the kinds of work, uh, the kinds of tasks that are, that are included in law. I would encourage people to consider it. It isn't for everybody, but I think it's going to be, it's going to return to the characteristics and the rewards that caused you and me to choose to be lawyers when we did. Right, right. Well, Ralph, thank you so much for joining us today, and I'm really excited to have you joining us on the podcast. Well, Dan, I, I really I loved every minute of this, and I too am excited to join you uh, in this program. Sounds great. Well, this has been another edition of the Law Technology Now podcast on the Legal Talk Network. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple Podcasts. Join us next time for another edition of Law Technology Now. I'm Dan Linna, signing off. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.